You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Disney Princess Edition. edition. Did we have a name for this I series? Don't know. I don't know. I don't. It doesn't remember. matter. No, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the Disney Princess films. We're talking about the Disney Princess Sequentially. films. Sequentially. I'm Nathan. That's Jake. That's me, yeah. He's a pastor. I'm a guy. And we are going to talk about... Sleeping Beauty. Sleep 1959's Yay. animated musical fantasy film, which... <laughs> reduces Jake to a five-year-old girl. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about Sleeping Beauty. We'll get into the history of the movie, what it meant for Disney, all that kind of stuff. But maybe Jake, Jake's like <laughs> bursting at the seams to talk about this one. I so first love impression, it. I love it so much. You love Sleeping Beauty. Did you grow up with this one? I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up with it enough for it to, I mean, all the characters and whatever are familiar. I don't know. We uh, never had this one. It, I, I don't remember this one even being available in a good like white white. It might not have been VHS for me. It, thing. I don't know. I just I do know that I did watch it as a kid. I don't think it was anything that we like watched on repeat. Yeah, um, I only saw this once or twice in my childhood. That's, that's kind of what I feel like too. But then it I, had a little bit of I, that mystique of being something that wasn't overplayed all the time. Yeah, and then I knew as an adult that I I loved it, and I didn't quite know why. And we got it. You know, for the kids, I don't know, probably, I don't know how long ago. And uh, man, I loved it then and I love it now. Well, there you go. I, I guess you might as well say, what do you, uh, I, I don't know how people, I, I, I'm not sure how our audience feels about this one. Is this a universally beloved? It feels I have like, no idea. feels and to I, me I like, my, my sense is it's a universally respected movie. But maybe not universally beloved. Yeah, but that might, that I might, that might just be my sense because that's kind of how I how feel about feel? it. Yeah. I love it. First of all, it's so stylish, and that in and of itself goes a long way for yes, me. Yes, agreed 100%. It is the single most stylish Disney movie of all time, and I love that. I love uh, the simplicity and the beauty and the creative risk in, in going the route that they did with it. I don't know. Maleficent is amazing. She's a great villain. Well, let's, can we stay on the art style for just a second? Because it, yeah. is, it is, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but it is gorgeous, and it does just look like Disney animation, like had a baby with a medieval tapestry or something. Yeah. It's just the coolest thing. Those forests. The like, forests are beautiful. I don't always have this thought when I watch a movie. Well, I don't know why I would always have this thought, but I had the thought in watching this movie, like I don't know when the last time I've wanted to just do a C.S. Lewis and jump into the... I, I, I felt the same thing. I was like, I want to that's live in a that forest, forest that I could... I, I, would, I would love to walk through that forest and sing. Right. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that forest is a forest that I would love to live in. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, you could, you could hang a lot of these frames on your wall. On your wall. As at paintings. Home. Absolutely. And not be ashamed of it. And 90% of people wouldn't know it was from a Disney film. Right. They would just think, wow, that's some stylish, cool art. Yeah. I mean, I would compare it to not, not in the style, but just in the level of detail and intricacy and beauty. Uh, something like a Miyazaki film, Spirited right. Away. Yep. Just the level of It's artsy of in a way that design. you don't think of Disney films being artsy. No, Disney films are almost designed, I mean, they're beautiful often, but they're almost designed to to just wash over you. You're not actually supposed to sit there as a kid, especially, and notice we're doing something with style. Yeah. You're supposed to just sort of connect directly to that Jungian side of your consciousness yeah, I mean, and just it, experience a story. Yeah, I mean, and you you are going to get beautiful scenes in, sure. you know, whether it's Belle Aladdin and the Beast are going to dance or, or Aladdin yeah, and Jasmine are going to have a bed, carpet ride. Uh, dress or, you know, the ball or the... Um, the eagle flight the, the, and... Um, the Sierra, 
not the Sierra. The, the Eagle Flight? Is that what you're talking about? The, no, the Eagle Flight and Rescuers Down uh, yeah. Under. No, I was talking about the... Uh, the Sierra. The Tundra, the... A wide open space, I'm guessing. Yes, yeah, so a don't wide know, open space. I don't space. know which one. What Disney movie has a wide the open sa- space? The Savannah. Oh, right. Lion King. Yeah, Lion pretty King. famous I one. don't know why Sierra replaced <laughs> Sierra. Savannah in my, uh, in my brain, but it did, and it got lodged there. But yeah, just the Lion King, those beautiful African vistas. Right. There's a lot of beauty in all, all of those films, but just in terms of, you know, maybe, you know, part of it may just be the, and I know that we're going to talk about the guy, uh, the painter. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's just as simple as Disney films don't feel like they are handled by a uh, by an auteur, right? And this one feels like it's been handled by an auteur. Well, apparently the story is that Walt Disney had hired any number of great graphic designers and artists that he had working for him to design his films, but by the time the films got through the process, by the time they came out the other end of the Walt Disney machine. They wouldn't actually look like that someone's work. And so he actually sat, you know, his top people down and said, doggone it, if we're going to make a movie based on the style of such and such, then let's actually do it this time. We've never actually done it. And Sleeping Beauty, like that was a direct command command from the top. We want this movie to feel like a, like it, like it's in the 14th century. Right. And well, and specifically, what's the guy's name? Ivan Earl or yeah, something like Earl. that? Yeah, Ivan Earl. Like, if we if we have Ivan Earl and we appreciate what he's doing, let's let's uh, unshackle him. Here. Yeah, let's not kind of have him do some really cool designs that we all like looking at on the wall in the studio, and then uh, what's the word? Tame them down and, and put them through the machine so that they just look like everything else. Yeah, it's the one time it, that Disney hasn't Disneyed. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And you think about even modern Disney, like. Oh, we're going to hire uh, Guy Ritchie to do an Aladdin movie. Yeah, we're just not going to let him be Guy Ritchie. There will be about three seconds where you could maybe where you recognize. you feel like it's, oh, Guy, oh, Ritchie. it's Guy Ritchie. It's like, no, you hired an auteur who has a style. Right. If you're going to hire an auteur who has a style, then you should give him the freedom to let his style define the film. And if you're not going to do that, then what's the point? And, right? and, and don't just do it for Ryan Johnson. That's a bad right. idea. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, the one person they, let, <laughs> one person they, they, they ever gave freedom just gave was Ryan Johnson. A Good idea, check. guys. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you could give Ryan Johnson that freedom, just not in Star Wars. Right. If you could do a different kind of, a Ryan different kind of Disney a, film. Ryan Johnson's a deconstructionist. There are things that deserve to be deconstructed or that haven't been deconstructed before. Or I don't know. Just just be careful. Hire the right auteur for the right job and then exactly. let them loose. Yeah, Exactly. But yeah, the style of the movie is amazing. You know, it's funny. The only other Disney movie that's popping into mind that actually does have a really distinctive graphical design style, and it's, it's not a movie that I like that much at all. At least I didn't when I was a kid. I don't, I've not seen it since. Hercules. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It has kind of those uh, Greek, Gre- that Greek, Greco, Ionic, I want to say. That's a word that I remember from high school. Yeah, it's the curly cues at the top the of the The curly columns. cues, and they even put curly cue, like his chin. It's it's all... Yeah, it's all that way. It's all designed that way. And that movie has a very distinct visual style, which I might actually really like if I watched it again. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't... I remember know. liking it as a kid. Yeah, I think it and Milan kind of both hit when I was a surly teenager that couldn't be into those things. Yeah. Well, well we both had little brothers. I mean, that's how I would have watched Hercules. Yeah. I, I don't remember ever minding. I don't know. I might really like it. It was also kind of from the the post-Renaissance era where 
is like everything had to be hip and sarcastic and yeah everybody was comic relief bringing danny devito in here and yeah well it's off it's fine you know you always got to have your danny devito but then to have the leads actually be in on the joke was something that kind of happened around that time wasn't he though it just Mm -mm. but hades is and the girl the girl kind of is like yeah yeah she's everybody's in on the joke but hercules he's just kind of a simple oaf but it feels like the movie's in on the joke like generally you want bell and the beast to be serious and then they're surrounded by a menagerie of comic relief and that's fine but muses are in on the joke yeah it just feels like the world is basically the world is basically comic that's what i remember about it and mm-hmm. that's something that i don't always like about the later disney movies yep but this isn't exactly in on the joke no well i don't know maybe, maybe we'll have to i don't know what uh, apparatus we would have for watching Hercule- hercules like what series we'll it would fit out. into but maybe we we'll, we'll come it. back eventually and round out all of disney but I like that we're just doing the princess movies because yeah. it, it really helps define them in, in my mind. Well, yeah. And I think it'll be super fun when we do our second series and it's all the non weirdo offshoot non-princess movies. Yeah. I mean, you'll have some real classics. Like if we, if we just w- straight went and picked up all the stragglers, you'd have a few cl- stone cold classics like Dumbo and Pinocchio. Pinocchio and Fantasia, but then you'd get into things like Oliver and Company and The Rescuers. Aristocats. And Aristocats. And those are, those would be fun to talk about, I think. Yeah. Great we Mouse Detective. Finally get a chance for, to get all my feelings on microphone about Robin Hood, the much beloved and not well that deserved great Robin Hood movie. Well deserved With love. Great soundtrack. That's what I'll say about that movie. And a lot of slapstick that's not that funny for an adult. But if you're a kid and you liked it, I mean, I liked it when I was a kid. If you just like Robin Hood stories, it's fine, I guess. But if you really like Robin Hood stories, then... Get a real Robin Hood story. Get a real Robin. Watch watch Errol Flynn. All right, then. Everyone has their own Robin. You know what? Not many kids are going to, these these days, going to go for an Errol Flynn movie. Yeah. Nathan. Yeah, it's true. But, yeah. You got to be a certain kind of... Not many adults are going to go for an Errol You have to be a certain kind of person who... Thinks it's to, cool to know things about Errol Flynn movies. Yeah, to go for Errol Flynn movies. I, I still think the Adventures of Robin Hood holds up as a great adventure movie. Yeah, it might, but to get past the hurdle of the it's old, it's old and black and white and cheesy, or probably cheesy. It, th- those are hurdles that. Yeah. No, I I I agree. We'll have to watch it sometime because it's a great one, but. It Pe- might be on the AFI. Yeah, I think it is. I, th- I think it's probably near the top, actually. By the way, people, when I make bold statements about things that you love, like Robin Hood, I don't actually think you're a bad person or deserving of my scorn because you like Robin Hood. I just think it's fun to talk like that on the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Nathan. You're welcome. I do like Robin <laughs> yes, Hood. And you have my permission. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a different I'm opinion. So, I'm so relieved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Did you ever, do, do we ever want to get any other summary thoughts about Sleeping Beauty out here? I mean, my basic take on the movie. I like is, the fairies. I like Aurora. I like Philip. I like Stefan and Philip and Stefan are the kings. No, Philip's the prince. Philip's the prince. Stefan and uh, it starts with an H. And I'm oh, he's got a. It's like Hogarth. One of the or worst names in the world. Hogarth is from. I think somewhere in Iron my notes Giant. I wrote worst name in the world. It's 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 a bad name because it makes you think of puberty. Hubert. Hubert. Yeah. <laughs> makes you think of people. It makes it makes everyone. It, it never occurred to me. Would you Hu- name- Hubert and Stefan? I like all of them. I like I like the bard. I like 
It's there's nobody and nothing that I don't not like. I would say uh, for me, Aurora is not a zero. She's not as insipid as like Snow White, but just comparing her to Cinderella, I think I'd say take Cinderella I, over Aurora. I'm going Aurora. Man. Design wise, I'd take Aurora. I like her little uh, her bangs, her bangs, her, her very not medieval at all, but <laughs> very of the 1950s era, late 1950s. Some blonde Audrey Hepburn stuff going on with Aurora. Yeah, her bangs and Aurora is a her waist that you can. Fit, actually know, put one your, hand around. <laughs> yeah. Well, people had a very specific idea of feminine beauty in, I, that, I in like those the, days. I like Aurora because she's got a... Do we want to talk about Aurora now? Sure, why not? Aurora's this conversation got, can be... We're, we're all uh, friends Aurora's here. another step away from the just the, oh, innocent perfection of Snow White and Cinderella. And Cinderella's got some personality, but she's also just sort of like... Damsel in distress, innocent perfection. Aurora's got a little smirk in the corner of her mouth. She knows that those fairies are doing something for, and they're just trying to get her out of the house. And I like her she relationship it's with kind, the fairies. She thinks it's kind of fun and cute, and she's the kind of person that you know would humor this stupid. And, and instead of like having a serious, intimate heart to heart with the with the woodland creatures, she's gonna you know kind of smirk and play with them and let them humor her and dance and. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's some big super serious thing, but it's fun. No, she's more down to earth, but she also lacks the likable virtues of one of the more insipid. Like she's not good in a way that you can get behind like Cinderella is. She's not put upon in a way that you can get behind like Snow White is. There's there's just not, I just didn't feel like there was a lot to get behind one way or another with her what she is is she's isolated and sheltered and has no contact with people and has managed to still have good humor about all of it she meets a man she's scared of him at first and then she realizes actually this is a pretty good guy and you can you can decide well is she just an idiot or is she actually pretty quick on her feet and then she gets heartbroken and then she's like a little sulky and well, I like that story. I'd I'd love to see them remake it and flesh it out a little bit. The way you're telling it, it's like, oh, the the innocent that's also a quick study that's also has a really good attitude, but also just doesn't understand the world because she's like that's that's a really fun story. I'm not sure that I got enough of that to. I mean, they come home. She comes home really after meeting it. this guy, and and then she is just like, bam! Actually, you're betrothed to a prince. How's that? Oh, you're a qu- you're a princess. Oh, yeah, we actually took you away from your parents when you were a small baby. She's just like, bam, 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 hit with that stuff. So she's just like, the next time we see her, she's wearing the pretty dress, but she's got this hood over her head, and she's just like, I have no idea what is going on with my life, and I hate everything. And yeah. I'm going to go, and I'm going to sit down in front of the mirror, and I'm going to put this beautiful crown on my head, and I'm just going to lose it. I like that. I, I think I'd like to see the more fleshed out, like Disney Renaissance version of that, where it's a little bit more relatable and real and psychologically. But all, but, but all of these movies, they have the same philosophy, and they have the same philosophy. These early ones that a lot of heroes' journey and fairy tale stories have, which is all the interesting characters are the side characters, so that you can you put, put yourself into the circumstances of the hero and heroine. Right. We've often and argued that the hero or heroine a real should in fact be a blank slate. It is the, the virtue of a hero's journey type yeah. story or a fairy tale. Yeah. And so they still do that, but they give 
Aurora just a little bit of personality and likability, and then they give Philip more personality than they've given yes. any Disney prince. Philip, I want to say this might be a bold claim, and I might have to revise it. Actually, I'm already going to revise it because the Beast is better. But I was about to say Philip might be the best Disney, Disney prince. prince. I mean, I've already thought of one. I guess I'll, is Aladdin considered a Disney prince? He's yeah. definitely better. He's considered a. I think he's consider. He has to be considered a prince. So you got Aladdin, Beast. And you've got, uh, who, Eric? Well, okay, how about this? As far as Disney princes whose names don't appear in the title of their films, Philip <laughs> might be the best. There you go. If you're making a movie primarily about a girl and we have the stock guy in it, Philip- Philip's great. Is the best. He's got a sense of humor. He's got a yeah. good relationship with his horse. Little yeah. proto frozen there. Yep. He's- fun he's a little quippy their romance is better written and more interesting than i mean it's not very interesting frankly but it's it's the two it's, minutes it's more it interesting happens. than cinderella or snow white yeah no 100 percent. this is a I quantum mean, leap you know he's gonna track down the voice we're gonna see a lot of we're gonna learn a lot about philip in just a few little scenes with this horse no carrots mm -hmm. you know tells you a lot yeah and then the way he slips in and starts dancing with her with this sort of dashing confidence mm -hmm. that, but you really like that guy. I like that guy. You do. And it's, uh, it's a, and then, and then, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna show up, you know, to the cottage. He's gonna go and have this humorous conversation with his father. He's gonna trick his father into saying, yes, you can marry the girl that you love. Yeah. And he's gonna hop on his horse and dash away while, you know, and he's gonna show up and he's gonna be locked in the tower. And, mm hmm even Maleficent's going to give him some sympathy because Maleficent's going to be like, I could kill you or I could just keep you here for a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he he's pretty great and he gets to be a really, I'm sorry, folks. I know we're a Christian podcast, but this is a pretty ubiquitous word. He's a really badass He's about as badass at the, like, uh, prince as you could want. He's going to go get that girl. He's going to cut his way through the thorns the very symbolic thorns and mm. thistles of you know surrounding the the castle he doesn't care maleficent is daunt you know like no impossible mm -hmm. like how is he you know and then he's going to fight that dragon and yeah. he's going to kill that dragon or die trying like he's just this is who you know that's philip like what girl i mean what a dude yep a pretty good metaphor for uh relationships in general <laughs> You meet some chick, some <laughs> some hot barefoot chick in the, in woods, the woods and dancing with an owl. You start to dance with her. And I mean, who hasn't been there? It's erotically charged. <laughs> Which I, will, I don't know if I should say this on mic, but I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but that whole woods setup is the most it's, it's romantically romantic, yeah. charged of, it's super of romantic. any Disney. And Once Upon a Dream is a great song. It is a good song. It's a great song. And... Yeah, that's part of what I really love about this movie is it really is the most, to me, one of the most romantic Disney films mm -hmm. of all time. And it, you know, it's really simple. And if you break it down, if you break anything down, you know, you can pull, you pull on any one thread and it falls apart. No, like, it's still it's two so dimensional. We're not going it's into It's really it. stupid in the sense of, oh, these fairies have lived with this girl for 16 years. It's her 16th birthday. Now we're going to pull out our magic wands mm -hmm. at the 11th hour. Now we're going to walk her through the woods at the 11th yeah. hour. Now we're going to put her away in a tower by herself. 
at the with only 30 minutes to go before the sun sets and we've sealed the deal here like, and every, every step this is along where the way, you lock her like, in the closet actually like yeah and you surround her yourselves you know the fairies in the center and then you have the army all the way around and you're just waiting until sunset right <laughs> <laughs> you're not letting that witch get anywhere close to her yep you, you break it down that way you break it down to oh he they fell in love because she was singing and then they started dancing like he had in fact wooed her in her dreams i guess and i guess so it's all okay and that's how that's, that's how it works <laughs> except for that's not ours but but it, you can do this with any hero's journey like yeah you can, can do it with this. any grimm's fairy tale yeah any... and and that's the point is not uh that the details all work the point is that the broad strokes of the story work because the broad strokes of the story represent reality or our lives in a way that we can all connect to that's why i mean i'm not really kidding when i say it's a pretty good metaphor for for dating and engagement and marriage that you uh whatever whatever you know and you can plug your own reality in here but one way or another you meet somebody you're you swoon romantically you have a few moments and then suddenly you have to fight your way through the thorns and uh, not to use the most overused Christian metaphor of all time, but you kill, the kill dragon that dragon and get the girl. Get the girl. Yep. And yeah, I think every guy that's successfully been married can see something in that. We all know who our dragons were, or what our dragons were, yep, and what the thorns were, and who the good fairies were, and who Maleficent was. So yeah, that's why it works. It really does tap into primal yeah, things. Yeah, which is to say, and I know you want to argue that it's a bad story, but that to me is, that is a good story. It's well, just a good story. It is the story. Yeah, so, no, I, I love everything about this movie, except for the- Maleficent's so good. Sorry. Maleficent, yeah, we'll get to Maleficent. Yep. The, my major problem, which I don't think I've actually articulated on, on Mike yet, is just simply one of, structure we are going to spend a lot of time padding things out with quote-unquote comedy until we get to the story actually starting like the inciting incident as screenwriters like to call it the thing that is going to drive the story forward you could argue the inciting incident is maleficent showing up and, and making the curse but really the inciting incident is i would argue is her maleficent her shows up in the in but, the tower. Yeah, and she pricks her finger. Like, yep. sleeping... We all know the one thing that's got to happen in this story is there's got to be a sleeping beauty, and that problem's got to be solved. We're not really even introducing that problem or bringing it to the forefront until the end, until the climax. But yeah, and but that the bomb's been like, under the table the entire time. Or the, bon- the bomb's been above the table the entire time, or however you say that Hitchcock thing. Yeah, the bomb's... We, we know, we've known the bomb's under the table... The yeah, whole time. we've all known the bombs under the and table. And it's ticking. It's called Sleeping Beauty. The curse was there at the beginning. The question is when and how. Oh, is it when she's going to go wandering through the woods? Is that when she's going to? No. Okay. They come back. Oh, now they're walking slowly through the woods together again. And Maleficent now knows. And the crow. Oh, no. Uh, so they're going to be intercepted on the way? No. Okay. Oh, they made it to the castle. Well, I know that this can't last. How is this going to happen? Oh, no. Don't leave her alone in the room. Yeah, that's fine, but I wish it actually felt like that. Like you don't feel oh, it like does. I, like what or I what, what, me, what I, I want know. is by the end in that in the end of that first act, and it doesn't have to be action exactly. Like here's the way they would do There's it. There's not a lot of action at all in the first act. No, the action's all safe for the end, and the action's awesome. But 
Like if they made that movie today, here's the dumb way they would do it. Act one would end with an action scene where Maleficent is chasing them or she suddenly finds herself in a room of spinning needles and she has to avoid them or something. Who knows? But that's obviously the dumbest idea that anyone's ever said. But you would feel like basically it would take the form of a chase movie. Probably they'd go into the woods. The bad guys would be looking for them. The bad guys would discover their hideout somewhere near the beginning of act two. They'd have to retreat and find a new hideout. Things would look bleak and we'd be on the move. The story would always feel like it was going somewhere. Like we were always trying to get away from Maleficent. What we have instead is this act two that's all about falling in love, which is well done, and all about fairy comedy, which is well done. There's, there's nothing about it that and I don't Stephanie like. Hubert. Yeah, they're good. I, th- I think that they are a, a nice update, a nice revision, a better version of the Cinderella King. King. And his... His... Uh, whatever, the Duke. The or... Duke or the concierge or whatever that guy's name yeah. was. Nice. You know, Disney had a uh, pretty distinct idea of what a pompous father figure was like. And you see that guy in a lot of those, <laughs> a lot of those movies. Mr. Darling and Peter Pan, certainly. Yeah. Don't so, you mean Captain Hook? Yeah, don't I mean Captain Hook? But I guess you could argue that all comes from Barry. But the slapstick with the father figure is yeah. pretty... Disney liked to make buffoons out of fathers. Do with that information what you will, if you hadn't figured it out before. So yeah, it just feels lopsided or something like that it it would be like if i don't know what's an analogy it'd be like if indiana jones didn't actually go and look for the ark until the third act when we always knew he was going to and we knew the nazis were gearing up and we knew they were out there but he's not actually going to do the thing until the end and then it's going to be awesome that's just what it feels to me so the the story just feels a little bit arrested a little bit like it's not actually going anywhere like bell isn't actually going to meet the beast until the end or i don't know what the analogy is but that second act just goes on for a long time and you're like 45 minutes or 50 minutes into a movie that's not much longer than an hour before you actually get to the thing that you know the movie's about yeah i I just straight up disagree with you i think that the tension is there from the moment they decide to let to send her berry picking to make her a cake and a dress it's like it's the birthday it's tonight and they're gonna send her out berry picking because there are three fairies that want to make a and then we're in this beautiful wonderland of a forest this entire time and we get this wonderful romantic thing happening interspersed with comedy bits of hubert and stefan and the and the fairies Mm -hmm. and those are fun scenes to me those are fun yeah every scene let me just be clear every scene is good in and of itself i just feel like if you could shuffle them around somehow so that the exciting stuff came a little bit more up front, the movie would not feel lopsided in a story sense to me. But the forest is still beautiful. The romance is still good. The fairies are still funny. The kings especially are still funny. And it all, I think it's... It all works. I think it's chock full of tension. That, that I think it's dramatic tension that works. She's wandering through this forest. Does it feel as threatening as the forest in Snow White? No. It doesn't feel threatening at all, actually. But there is that a setup? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, then you've got the romance, and then you've got even the the tension that gets resolved with uh, Hubert and Stefan. Of well, what if your daughter doesn't like my son? I'm gonna pull a fish and try to fight you, right, and we're all yeah. gonna laugh because we're already a little sloshed. Yep. Like, 
Um, it's the 14th century. That was I like that line. Yeah, that was fun. Come on, Father. It's the 14th century. Yeah, that after all, it is the 14th. You know, that I thought that was just that re- repetition was a lot of fun too. I mean, you can tell we're getting into the swinging 60s and like the the notion of the rebellious teenager that wants to do it their way is something that's very much on everyone's minds as they're yeah, and they write it in and, and they write it in yeah. Meanwhile, you know, we're flashing to Leficent's castle and we know that she's searching and, oh no, Aurora's in the woods. She's alone. Maleficent now is searching. She's got her crow out. Oh no, the fairies are going to do something dumb and signal. Oh no, the fairies are hilariously stupid because they, you know, this dress is stupid and she doesn't know what it means to fold in an egg. And Mm -hmm. to me, all that stuff, it doesn't just work in and of itself. It works because you're... You know, you gotta, you have to love the fairies and understand who they are for the dramatic tension of the third act to work for them. You have to understand what's compelling about Aurora to understand Philip. You have to have enough of Philip to really believe in him and what he's going to do in the third act. And all those things are hard to do when you've got 16 years that you have to have passed. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they set up, they set the table in the first act. Then they jump forward and they give you, I think, enough to go on so the third act hits home and it's enjoyable to me to just live in it for that second act. And I don't, I don't mind it. I don't feel it drags. I don't, I'm not impatient about it and I'm not feeling like it lacks dramatic tension because I always feel like there's this doom hanging over her head that we know we're driving toward. And I think that they like to play with it. Like I love even how long it takes to get from... Maleficent shows up in the tower to mm-hmm. uh, the pinprick and yeah. the fairies running around all over the the place. Rose, Rose. That's a really you creepy know. scene. It's a really creepy scene in a really awesome sort of way. Mm. Here she is hypnotized following the green light. You're in this labyrinth of a castle, you know, and you know, it's all dark and they've got their wands lit with their color and flying around Rose, Rose. Mm. And they got the echo effects going and, and then boom, they finally make it up there and Maleficent is just there, but it's just Maleficent there. And then she pulls back her, here's your precious princess. And she pulls back her, <laughs> everything with Maleficent. She's so wonderfully wicked. Yeah. Well, we might as well talk All about All the powers her. of hell. All the powers of hell. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> she is a wonderful design, first of all. Probably yeah. the first glam villain, a uh, precursor to Ursula and maybe right. a couple of others. Just uh, that purple makeup and the purple. The purple and green of the, the, Maleficent. Yeah, oh, and the evil green. Yeah. What was most striking to me this time about her was that black demon shape that she turns into anytime she apparates or disapparates. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary stuff. Yeah, it is. Like, I guess one of the guys that designed the sequences, like at her castle, was the guy that designed the Night on Bald Mountain sequence for Fantasia when the devil mm-hmm. comes up, which is one of the scariest things from my childhood. Yeah, so. well, all of those, all of the creatures are all just little demons and goblins that surround her and they're all like barely defined right there's the one kind of pig sergeant guy who's a little bit funny Mm -hmm. but mostly they're just oh the cradles yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know you were looking for a baby mostly they're just she just starts laughing they're just great yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's pretty great i mean i don't know what else what else what what there is to say about her she is in the pure evil witch mold but 
She's probably the best. Have you ever seen the Angelina? I've never watched. I've never, and I have never and been I interested. I've never been in any way attracted to uh, desire. I've had no desire whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Not no affection for. Probably affection for Sleeping Beauty has only worked to keep me from. Well, for one thing, Maleficent is such a perfect icon of evil. I don't really want to get her backstory backstory and understand how she was misused. Let's not make her psychologically real. Let's make her evil. Like what's great about Maleficent is she is the devil, right? Like she has all the powers of hell. Yeah, quite quite literally. (laughs) And she turns into a dragon. Yeah, (laughs) and magic is too strong for the fairies. Yeah, they can't undo the curse. They can only try to mitigate it. She's just evil, and she's like the force of evil in that world. She's something that they just have to put up with. Yeah, it's like, you know, where does the frost that kills the flowers come from? <laughs> it comes from Maleficent. Yeah, she she is just... She ruins all your most beautiful flowers. Like <laughs> She is she just, just the devil. Yeah, she just is a hateful person who hates... Well, and I love the fact that the king's not going to immediately order her head cut off when she appears she is like a dignitary and an excellency she has to be respected actually has to be respected once she puts a curse on your kid of course all bets are off then it sees her her uh, that won't go well (laughs) but she's the kind of force of nature that we all have to put up like we all know there's a castle we know where it is we know that it's thundering and it's been thundering and lightning now for 16 years because (laughs) she's been mad about things but we can't just storm the castle like no, you know, the fairies are like, we can't go there. And they're like, oh, we got to. Like, th- we don't have a choice at this point. It was super scary for the fairies to go there. Right. She's just, and once again, you don't need psychological complexity. It's not about a real character. It's about cancer. It's about yeah. death. It's yeah. about the devil. It's about these unassailable things that are evil in our lives that we cannot control. And I love that they give even little touches like Meriwether turns the pet crow into stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the best action scene is probably one of those goofy fairies versus <laughs> a crow. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Weathers is fed up. She's going to roll up her sleeves and chase that crow down and yep. trick it and be their way to, you know, and that's going to like crush Maleficent. Yep. So now she's really angry. The, the Disney villains tend to have a high regard for their animals, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Ursula was pretty mad when her eels got yep. destroyed. Yep. There's, I guess uh, J- Jafar always kind of mistreated Iago, Iago, which backfired on him in Return of the Jafar, <laughs> <laughs> famously. <laughs> uh, Cruella, no, Cruella was not nice to anybody. I don't know. No, but not even Horace and Jasper. Not even Horace not and Jasper. Not even, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Maleficent's great. That dragon fight is great. The things that are great about this movie are so obviously great. I'm not even sure what to say about them besides that they're great. One thing that's worth talking about is the direction the music and the soundtrack takes. Mm-hmm. First of all, I really think that this the soundtrack itself is underrated. It's very Tchaikovsky. It is Tchaikovsky. Yeah, it's like a, his ballet, right? His ballet, they just took it and the guy that wrote the that, you know, actually wrote the music probably got less royalties that way cuz he had to adapt Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky instead. Yeah. Although Once Upon a Dream is an original, it's not based on anything. Yeah, but when you look at the originals, like actually, apart from Once Upon a Dream, they moved away from pop songs. Yeah, the catchy it? pop songs mm-hmm. that, you know, Bippity Boppity Boo, Cinderella, or even Hi Ho. Like, yeah, there's really none of that. Do the fairies have a number? No. No, they don't. The fairies don't have a number. Yeah. 
that's weird for Disney. Yeah. Like the fairy, those kinds of characters always get a number. That's just like. Instead, they get ballet. Right. And they dance. Yeah. They twirl as they, you know, clean the room. And, you know, it's just a very. Well, and there's these, what I actually really loved was how it made me realize how earthbound a lot of animated movies actually are. Like how concrete, like animation can do anything. You don't have to follow the rules of what we would actually see. You can have flights of fantasy. And some many animated movies do take advantage of this, but many don't. And what I'm the reason I'm saying all that is because there's these weird psychedelic scenes, like when they'd bestow the gifts. Yeah. We're just gonna go into the nebulous outer space. Yeah, swirly misty swirly, misty, magical world of symbol and archetype and just see see yeah. it from that point of view and it's really cool yeah and they do things like that i guess cinderella had the little bubble thing that was that came, really felt like it came out of left field in that movie where she does a little ballet with the bubbles yeah but this movie has a lot of things like that that actually feel of a piece with it even it. has bubbles yeah it does yeah <laughs> although the bubbles aren't doing quite the same thing where are the bubbles in this movie remind me the bubbles are when they drop rocks try to drop rocks on them so as they're escaping Maleficent's castle, right. yep. they one try to the drop fairies. rocks. Yep. One of the fairies turns the rocks into bubbles. They shoot arrows. Right, right, right. Flora turns the arrows into flowers, and then they're going to dump boiling oil, and Fauna or somebody you know, makes a rainbow right. bridge or arch to protect them. I, I guess the lesson in all of this is that Robert Zemeckis sucks, and the Polar Express, and all these movies where animation tries to replicate human real behavior life. in real life as much as it possibly can you know mocap animation yeah it's like no the better thing is to actually bypass what human behavior really looks like and get to how it feels like get yeah. to what's iconic and what's what kind of exists in our youngian yeah you know unconscious like, this is how a fairy tale feels. This is getting at something primal. It's not about capturing what would, what it would really be like to be in the woods. You can't find that woods. Although, yeah. Although I will say, you, I guess the other thing that I think really sucks about the modern stuff is that in a weird way, it spoiled my kids and ruined parts of... So the action of Sleeping Beauty is really great. Mm-hmm. My kids got taken out of it and laughed because... You know, there's just like, he's just waving his sword around. Yeah, and the bad guys are just kind of not getting slashed or anything. Yeah, nothing. So he's just sort of like waves his sword. Like they thought that was hilarious that all he does is hold up his shield and just sort of wave his sword around. You know, even when he's fighting Maleficent, he's just sort of flailing his sword in the air and Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like. It's connecting or doing. Yeah, it doesn't look like sword play. It doesn't look like it's connected. It doesn't look like what anybody would actually do. And they just, that stood out to them. And that was. That was a sad moment for me. Yeah. That's why, if I may, I think it's nice for kids and for people in general to get a diet of old stuff so that you can just learn to have, so that you can sort of train your brain to have that frame of reference where when you watch Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, you don't have to do too many mental gymnastics to get put yourself in the mindset where you understand this is what it looked like mm-hmm. then, you know, this, you don't have to make too many apologies for it. Watch a few black and white movies so that your kids aren't completely shocked by black and white movies. Yeah, so that they can acclimate them to the idea that black and white movies can actually be really great. You don't want black and white to be a barrier between them 
uh, loving uh, It's a Wonderful Life, for example. Like, right. they, they shouldn't need the colorized version. Not probably very high on the list of places where you need to train your kids, but I don't know. Yeah. Something nice to do, in my opinion. So we talked about Aurora. We it's like about acclimating the- your kids to Shakespeare or acclimating your kids to... Shakespeare is actually a really great example because he talks funny and he doesn't talk like anyone talks. He doesn't talk like anyone talks then. It's a certain form and you have to be able to understand it. It's like you have to know how to look through this, these particular goggles, you know, how to make the magic eye come together so that you can actually see the picture. Yep. Like you have to accept and understand and sort of bathe in a lot of things about Shakespeare before you can just get through, through all that and see the story and the artistry. And all the things that you're supposed to appreciate about Shakespeare. It's the same thing for black and white or for old styles of movie or for old styles of animation. Even like you just kind of have to get past all that. And kids have a harder time because they're going to be more. Well, they've got Pixar. They've got Pixar and they've got modern Disney and Marvel and Marvel. And they've got whatever those shows are. They've got Paw Patrol. They've got. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about evil things right now. I'm just, I'm talking about neutral things. They, they've got a vocabulary of how cinema and TV and everything works that's being fed to them on a daily basis. And it can be hard for them to get out of that and see and understand a different vocabulary or even an archaic vocabulary yep. for how these kinds of things, for how visual storytelling happens. And that's not a big deal, but I think it, it is nice for someone to have the ability to enjoy, say, It's a Wonderful Life without being like, ew, it's black and white. So what else do you want to say about Sleeping Beauty? I have some general information, some context for it that I can throw in at any moment. Go ahead. Well, it came out in 1959 after, so Cinderella hits in 1950 and is a big hit for the studio. And then they do some things that aren't as successful. They do okay. Things like Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, which weren't huge in their first runs. And so Disney says we need to do another fairy tale. And he really pours everything into Sleeping Beauty. It is like an attempt to really just be the next stage of of evolution. Yeah, it is. I've I've been confused for a while because I had remembered... I guess falsely that part of the reason they leaned into the tapestry style animation was actually because of budget cuts and it was a way to save money while making it artsy, but I don't think so. It may be, I don't think so because what actually happened was beauty or sleeping beauty was the second highest grossing film of 1959, but it was a financial failure for the studio because of how much they invested because of how much they invested in it. And, you know, it's made money on reruns and stuff, just like a lot of Disney classics have done. But the movie was such a disappointment for for Walt Disney that he never did another fairy tale in his lifetime. Mm. The studio didn't do another fairy tale until The Little Mermaid 30 years later. And so this is kind of the movie that broke broke Disney. Disney. I mean, he still had Mary Poppins in him and uh, he still had some great things in him. But in terms of this style and this way of doing things, you know, the Disney princess, the Disney fairy tale, like Walt Disney was not interested in doing that after this movie. And we don't really know, but you have to assume it's because his heart was really in this one and it didn't do as well as. Yeah. It it feels like uh, what it feels like is, you know, you have those early movies that felt very, Disney, mm-hmm. very much his heart was in it. Then you have the break to try to make a 
engineer a commercial, some commercial successes. Right. Like Alice in and Wonderland, like, everybody's always said Dis- Disney and Lewis Carroll. Like that's a thing that Disney didn't come. You know, people just said, when are we going to get that? That's obviously a thing. So, okay, let's, let's give it to them. That's what the people, like the want. people, the that's people think that's what want. I was made to do. So I'm going to do it. And Peter Pan, kind of the same thing. And I mean, I think Disney cared about those movies. Well, but it, f- it feels like Sleeping Beauty's the very much, you know what? I've earned the right to, to say, make one for me. To make one for me and say, this is, you're going to like this because it's good. Right. We don't actually need an hour of dwarf comedy, even. We'll have comedy, but it's going to be part of a well balanced diet We're, of a movie. Yeah. There's none of We're the, giving you what you need and not what you want. Here. If you compare this to Cinderella, which we talked about last time, it's like, that movie feels very calculated in a yeah. good in a good way in a way that works but it feels like this is the quotient of humorous comedy this is the type of comedy this is how much bad guy this is how much scary this is how much beautiful mm-hmm. princess sleeping beauty is much more just like this is a movie that somebody wanted to make um it was also designed to be a show stra- uh Stopping Attraction, which is something that's worth noting about it. It's the first widescreen Disney movie. And the it's an interesting, I think it's interesting, history of Hollywood at that time because Hollywood was desperate to get people to come to the theater because television had become a thing. And so theater attendance was dropping. And ever since the 1950s, you've heard every year you read a story about how theater attendance has dropped. It's always something that Hollywood is panicking about. Mm-hmm. Ever since the boom of, you know, theater attendance being the premier entertainment of the early 20th century, other things have become more ubiquitous entertainment and Hollywood has never stopped freaking out about that. Or griping about it. Or griping about it. And one of the th- ways that they responded was by trying to make theater going into a more spectacle spectacle oriented luxurious art form like the theater isn't just the place where you go to get the newsreel and the cartoon and the thing no it's more like going to the ballet or you will never be able to see this on tv the way that you right can experience it in the theater and quite literally because the academy there's something called academy ratio which is the aspect ratio of a film that's basically a box and it's what you know, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, all the classic films are shot in. And televisions, of course, were quite naturally developed to be... To reflect that. To reflect that and to have that box shape. And so around 1950, somebody got the idea, let's open it up. Let's have a different aspect ratio. Let's do widescreen. That was a game changer. And I think it did get people back in theaters a little bit. But, you know, so Sleeping Beauty is designed as this beautiful spectacle. I mean, Mm -hmm. the same way we would go to see Jurassic Park for the dinosaurs, or I don't know what the exact equivalent is. We're so used to spectacle now that you can barely sell a movie on pure spectacle. Yeah, I mean, you can have a 72-inch 4K TV for 500 bucks and surround sound for another couple hundred bucks. Right. Well, and so here, the guy that is most in love with the history of this is Christopher Nolan, and he still tries to sell his movies this way, and is largely successful saying, you got to see the IMAX version of Dark Knight or Inception. It's going to have additionally filmed scenes where the Vista opens up, and it just won't be the same experience, you know, to see Interstellar at your local Cineplex. You got to see Interstellar the way Interstellar was made to be seen. Yep. That Christopher Nolan is drawing on Christopher the, Nolan, James Cameron. Yeah, those two guys in particular. They love the history of Hollywood. They grew up with 
some of these kinds of gimmicks. Uh, 3D was another big thing in yeah. the 1950s. Like you can't get 3D at home and 3D sucked back then. You could argue that it still sucks, but it was way worse. It was like a, just a bad process, a bad optical process back then. Those dumb red and red and blue, yeah, red and green. I think it is glasses. Red, is it red? And blue. no, it is red and blue. You're right. The other thing that happened that's I think pretty interesting. Hopefully, people find this interesting. Is the color process for film was rapidly changing in the 1950s. Color had been largely done through a proprietary process called Technicolor. Mm-hmm. back in those days and technicolor is a really difficult thing really hefty really expensive process basically the way technicolor works i'm not a scientist uh, not a photographer nor do i play one on a podcast folks but the way that technicolor works is the light goes into the camera and then it's refracted into the three primary colors red blue and what's the other primary color yellow yellow and those colors are printed on three different strips of film. So you've got your red and your yellow and your blue. And then when those strips are put together, it creates these bright, vivid colors when you play it back. And so if you're going to get green, you're actually going to get the light reflected into a blue strip and a yellow strip. And then we're going to put it together and we're going to get this really bright, beautiful green green color. But that's a really hefty, time-consuming expensive process it's also a really beautiful process but the innovation of the 1950s of i think in 1950 was one strip color photography there was a company called eastman color that came out and you'll see with a one strip process and that's what people basically used after technicolor and it's not nearly as beautiful if you watch like a 60s you know, think of something like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. The color in that is nothing like the color in The Wizard of Oz, for example. But we have this cheap, easy process that gets us pretty good color, nothing like the richness of Technicolor. Mm-hmm. But suddenly we can do, we can, everybody can do color. The other thing that happened, I already talked a little bit about the, the aspect ratio changing. So the real genius thing that people realized is that they could, instead of running the film vertically, through a camera, mm-hmm. they could run it horizontally. And that actually allows for you to change the Move. aspect ratio mm. because you kind of have to be a square if yep. you're going through, I don't know if this makes sense, yeah, but if you're going through uh, horizontally, you can, make, you can make the image as long as you want. What happened is you had Technicolor, it was beautiful. Then you had Eastman Color, it was not as beautiful, but it was the thing. Then you had all these peop- all these companies competing to say, they were the new thing, you know, they were the new awesome either aspect ratio or color process or whatever. And so you'll see old movies from the 50s and 60s and they'll be advertised as in beautiful Cinescope or Vista Vision or, you know, you'll see these dumb little things that don't really mean much to us now. But it was, again, a way to get people back in the theater. Like, you don't just want to see this movie for Gregory Peck. You want to see it because it's in glorious Vista Vision. So Technicolor went out, of, by, by 1954, Technicolor was dead. They wanted to get back in the game. They created something called Technorama, which is that wonderful 50s, very 50s, vibe. <laughs> very 50s name to it, which was a color process that ran sideways through the camera and was able to make these pretty beautiful widescreen wide images. And Sleeping Beauty was actually the first film to be released in beautiful Technorama. 
that was part of the excitement of you come see, you know, Sleeping Beauty is not just some dumb movie that gets released to your local mall. You're going to come, you're going to dress up, get a babysitter, take the wife, go see Sleeping Beauty. This is like a cinematic event. This is a cinematic event. Yeah. Which we're, you know, the Avengers Endgame, everybody kind of felt like that. But generally speaking these days, or, or the latest Star Wars, maybe we'll feel like that. But generally speaking, even the big blockbusters, we get one every week. So we don't feel the the weight of it, the excitement of it, you know, mm-hmm. unless it's James Cameron doing Avatar or something like that. We don't, things aren't really advertised to us as the next breakthrough. That's very much how Sleeping Beauty would have been advertised to people. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know that it really worked. Like, I guess, I guess like it, it didn't. I guess I it mean, worked because it was the second grossing, highest grossing movie, but it didn't do the kind of business that it needed to do to actually make the money back. Like, it didn't just bring the crowds in. And the movie, to my mind, isn't as well remembered or as beloved as some of the things like Snow White or Cinderella. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know that for my money, of the Disney movies up to. Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Beauty is the tops. Mm-hmm. But that's just for my money. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear from some of, some of our listeners. Did you grow up with Sleeping Beauty? Do you consider it to just be part of the the essential Disney canon like Jake does? Or do you consider it to be kind of a weird artistic outlier? Like I tend to just assume people think of it. I'm not sure. It, I, I may well be that Jake's absolutely correct, and most people just assume it's a classic, and I just didn't happen to grow up with it. No, but, I think he might be right, but I don't know. This is the way I feel about it. May have also just I'm been... I'm sticking to my guns on it, because I like it. It's pretty great. Well, the only other thing I want to talk about is a little bit more about that animation style. The uh, It is based on an artist named Edvind Earl. He was a artist who actually did work on backgrounds, illustrations, and styling at Disney. And this was his big uh, Disney moment. This was his moment. Disney said, you know, we've got this great guy. I want this to look like his work. I want it to look like a moving illustration was the phrase that he used. Like this should just be a tapestry come to life. That was very much the vision behind it. Even to Earl, he's just a really great graphic artist. And he kind of combines that Byzantine medieval tapestry style. Makes me think of things like Bruegel, uh, who's one of my favorite. Mm-hmm. artists bruegel's winter scene one of my favorite paintings i don't know what it's called it's just like people on a lake and trees yeah. and stuff like that i have a i have a prince of the harvester or the harvesters hanging in my actually it's not hanging right right this moment but yeah and woodcutters like what's the guy that did the hands durr or whatever you put that style together and what's distinctive about that style is that they hadn't quite nailed or they didn't quite care about perspective the same way that Renaissance painters cared about perspective. So the perspective in those, in like a Bruegel painting is just kind of weird. Like it's layers of tapestry almost receding into the background as opposed to perfect three-dimensional, yeah, a perfect three-dimensional vista. Mm-hmm. And Sleeping Beauty captures some of that. I think it's like, when, when you're in the woods, it's like animation also just lends itself to this in general, but it'd be like a foreground layer that'll kind of be its own mm-hmm. tapestry and then a background layer that's its own tapestry and then a background layer with a waterfall or a castle in the background. Mountains. Mountains. Um, and it's really beautiful. The other influence that you can see is Art Deco, yep. which I think most people 
pick up on know what easily. know yeah. what art deco is i mean when we think of art deco i guess nowadays we think of like i think of like the rocketeer or iron giant or yep kind of sci-fi things great gatsby movie great gatsby <laughs> yeah chrysler the chrysler building rolls yeah. royce cars early 20th century 20, yeah. is kind of just art deco the thing about the, the empire state building the best definition I think I ever read of Art Deco is it's cubism tamed, which I think is a pretty great way to think about it. Cubism is like Picasso and all these guys taking whatever they're painting and breaking it down into these geometric forms until it becomes almost, abs- grotesque. almost grotesque or abstracted. But if you tame that and you just take something and you don't make it grotesque, but you do break it down into simple geometric forms... That's what Art Deco style is, basically. So a building's not a bunch of ornamentation and curly cues and stuff. It's just three or four blocks or circles or simple shapes. Uh, the Iron Giant is not a million moving parts like Optimus Prime. He's sleek and made of geometric, beautiful, mm-hmm. sleek industrial shapes. Sleeping Beauty has a lot of that. Her hair yep. is just one example. It's like all... Uh, you compare it to Cinderella. Suggestions of curls. Suggestions of curls. Yeah. You compare it to Cinderella where everything's kind of soft and yeah. malleable and lots of ornamentation and it's just a different style. And Sleeping Beauty is beautiful that way. So, so I guess those are the things that people should know about Sleeping Beauty. It's an interesting experiment. It's too bad that it wasn't more successful. I would have loved to see the next Disney movie. I think Disney died in 65, so he had about six years left after this. Mm. And he did two, at least two great things, which are Mary Poppins and, well, arguably two great things. I really only care about one of them, but they'd be Mary Poppins and his theme park, which is what he really poured himself into after, you know, in the last years of his life was building that theme park, mm-hmm. which I guess has its own legacy of expense and hassle and Jake's inability to take his kids there, which you can listen to an episode yeah. about Sound of Sanity called I've been though. Disney Blues or something like that. Yeah, Jake's been. So you think it was worth it? Should is it good that we lost another fairy tale in the vein of Sleeping Beauty for Disney World? For my mm, I don't know. It felt pretty magical at the time, even if I was a less than magical age for it. What age were you? I think I was about twelve. About twelve that's gotta be one of the least magical ages to not nowadays, I bet, because you've got Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, and that's true. Some other fun things like that. Uh, you've got the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and the different places that you can go and any of the various theme parks that really, you know, would... Speak to the adolescent and all of us, not just the little kid. Yeah, I almost think that probably 12 is the ideal age now, mm-hmm. but... I've never been, but my sense of it is that a 12-year-old's not going to be that excited by It's a Small World or Magic Mountain or... Right. Magic Mountain was cool. Small World was kind of creepy. Pirates of the Caribbean, is that... Pirates of the Caribbean was fine. I, I do remember all of those things. Like, we did all the things. The Star Wars part that they had, which they did have, was... Or maybe that was Universal, I guess. Star Wars? Uh, I don't know. Back, back in the 90s, there was this, you know... R2-D2 and C-3PO were there. They would have belonged to Fox point. at that point, so I don't know. Wherever we were. Hmm. It, may have, it may have been a combo of Disney and, and Universal Studios, but C-3PO and R2-D2 were there, I remember. Somebody who's listening can explain that to us. Yes, please. Probably explain we, that We are me, not uh, historian, theme park historians. Nope. Just have some vague memories from my childhood. 
Uh, let's see here. I'm just looking through the notes that I took while I watched this. I don't think we have to go through this movie chronologically. I painted uh, uh, cells. I got to paint a cell. That's fun. Got to paint cells. Yeah, that was fun. Even if it was it was Mickey and Minnie, so that was kind of lame. But get to paint cells. Still, that's yeah. cool. Uh, let's see. My notes, Jake. Hail to the Princess Aurora. All of her subjects adore her. I thought that was a good rhyme, a good slant <laughs> rhyme. <laughs> I was very I, happy. I love the use of rhyme throughout this. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It, I mean, it is like there are any number of things that really contribute to the charm and mystique and romance of, of this and the use of rhyme, even occasional slant rhyme mm-hmm. throughout whenever anything magical is happening or even when non-magical things are happening. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's really great. I also just liked the unashamed use of corny choir. I liked when the narrator says, our story begins on that joyful day. And then the choir goes, on that <laughs> joyful day. Yeah. <laughs> it was named Aurora after the dawn. She was sweet. Aurora was sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's, <just> like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a white version of a gospel choir. Yeah, it, really, it really is. <laughs> Uh, my next note is, I love when the narrator says, looked unknowing upon his future bride and the little and kid's looking at the baby a, and he kind of like sneers. A, uh, yeah. yeah, That's just, that's Disney magic in a nutshell. <laughs> he knows how to bring those little human touches to a transcendent fairy tale story in a way that's just really cute and fun. Enter Maleficent. What a great entrance. That oh, was, yeah, man. That was my note. I, my next note was, I love the rules. Only three gifts from the fairies. She can't undo the curse. What is it about the random fairy tale rules that always feels so right? I didn't an- write a note that answered that question or had any insight <laughs> into it, but <laughs> yeah, I love the rules too. I I just think you gotta have them. I I think that what feels so right about them is because everything's so extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Having some boundaries that are hard, yes, really really anchors this, you. Makes the story feel anchored and I want to say safe. Mm-hmm. Like not just anything can happen, even if you don't establish rules for everything else that does happen establishing that you live in a world with rules right really helps well it gives you some safety like you said it's like maleficent we know can't just do anything well yeah it makes sense of like wow if maleficent's so powerful and can turn into a dragon why isn't she just destroyed this whole kingdom by now and laid waste to it well there there are rules right maleficent's job if she could she would yeah but she can't for reasons we don't have to understand Deeper magic from the dawn of time. <laughs> I was there. When the- <laughs> uh, Maleficent says, oh, when we cut to her for the first time and the subtitles that I had turned on said, disappointed sigh. <laughs> I liked that Maleficent was disappointed. Was disappo- had a disappointed sigh. <laughs> Sometimes those subtitlers just, uh, and then Maleficent had a great line, which is, they're hopeless, a disgrace to the forces of evil. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing that Star Wars, as much as Palpatine rejoices in his evil, he can't just say, like, he can't actually say the words, I love being evil. (laughs) Like, he can't just say, like, I stand for evil. (laughs) I like a a bad guy that's so bad that they they actually... The disgrace to the forces of evil. (laughs) It's like I'm and here now to... you will face all the powers of hell. Right. I work for hell. I'm here to do evil. That's my job. You see these horns? Right. I've got horns. <laughs> Is it a headdress? Are they really there underneath? I don't know. You don't know. But you're scared of them, aren't you? <laughs> uh, let's see. My next note is Aurora walks through the forest. Man, this forest. That log. 
Oh, that log. The that, log. That yeah. log is beautiful. Yeah, man, what a what a what a painting. I just yeah. I put that on my wall. Yeah, you're right. This movie's great. My next note was she harmonizes with an owl. <laughs> yeah. So that's a that's another fun thing. I mean, first of all, the birds are much more musical. Yeah. And I think that's really nice. And then, yeah, the owl and the way they play with who and I just think that's fun. This is one of the better princess, princess with, 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 with animal, animal scenes. Yeah. Menageries. Yeah. yeah. I, it's the first time I think that as an adult, I haven't been just a little tired of it. Like Snow White, some of that stuff just goes on and on and on. And Yeah. The Snow White stuff is relatively silly. Cinderella, they leaned into it, made it kitty and fun. Yeah. For kids. I like Gus Gus and yeah. Jock. Yeah. But I liked these animals. I just thought it, it was fun. Yeah. Would you let your daughter harmonize with an owl? If she, if she could pull it off, then yeah. Sure. In the forest all alone when she turns 16? Is that yeah. what you'll do for her sweet 16? Yeah. Tender berry picking in the forest. Barefoot. Always a good idea to walk through the woods barefoot. Yeah. That'll be up to her. I think that's fair. I think you're a good dad. Thanks. Uh, fairies use magic. What is it about Disney using magic to do household chores? I think Walt Disney must have just really hated doing the dishes and <laughs> mopping like, the floors. Domestic. Well, what I actually yeah, yeah, think Merlin and the sword. Yes, yeah, sword in the stone. This Cinderella. I, I, I what I, uh, Fantasia obviously has the most famous sequences. Disney's gonna get those. Or uh, it Disney. doesn't happen in Cinderella. No, it doesn't happen in Cinderella. You're right. The big ones would be Sword in the Stone, Fantasia, and this. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, and uh, and you know Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins certainly. Yeah. I think it really is just attractive and fun to watch. I mean, maybe this is such an obvious thing to say. I shouldn't even say it. But do, being able to levitate and all, do all that kind of stuff is cool, is one kind of cool. Being able to simply solve the mundane problems of life with magic makes magic a whole other kind of attractive. Yep. What if I never had to do the dishes again because I could just wave my magic wand? And yep. I, I think there's a real enticing especially for a 1950s housewife i'm sure there's a a real enticement to the disney brand of magic that comes with that sort of thing maleficent hypnotizes her creepy stuff yep it is creepy my deep insight into that skin goes green that is that the scariest disney scene i mean it's got a lot of competition but that's pretty it's pretty scary pretty scary stuff just the idea of a green specter appearing in your mirror like bloody mary come to me style and then instantly hypnotizing you, you have no power to resist. Mm-hmm. Then take, then leading you along a secret passage, creating a secret passage in your room, and then leading you along a secret corridor. There's like four or five creepy gothic stereotypes all put together into one yeah. scene. And the music there is really great. I don't know how I feel about the fairies putting everybody to sleep. Yeah. Felt a little... kind of covering over their failure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess... Instead of going and owning this up to Stefan and Hubert, uh, we'll just put him asleep. Oh, that reminds me. I did want to talk about a little bit. I think it's worth mentioning the original fairy tales that this is based on. Yeah. Because of all the creepy, old, horrible fairy tales, Sleeping Beauty is probably the worst. Really? There's a version by Gimbatista Basile, an Italian poet, courtier, and fairy tale collector who. Uh, collected a lot of fairy tales that it's like the first known record of them back in the 1500s. And he has one of the first known versions of the Sleeping Beauty myth. And that story is messed up, yo. She 
uh, let me see if I can get this straight. Sleeping Beauty, I think they forget to invite the Maleficent character. Like there's four or five bad fairies. They forget to invite number six. So number six, without being a horrible witch, but just being mad, puts that curse on Sleeping Beauty. She pricks her finger. She falls asleep. And that's the last we hear of the evil witch. She just exists. Maleficent was, I think it's probably worth saying, an invention of Disney. Mm -hmm. They really wanted to add some spice and yay them. They did. Yeah. There's no character like succeeded. that in any of the fairy tale versions. There's, it's usually just kind of a random bad fairy, bad fairy, but, or something, you know, just a curse. So Sleeping Beauty sleeps for a hundred years in this castle. It gets overgrown with thorns. But by the time our story really begins, there's legends that there's a sleeping princess in there, but people don't actually know. I may actually be conflating this with two different versions, but the important thing is that the prince is out hunting one day, stumbles in the castle, sees this beautiful maiden lying there, apparently dead, and does not kiss her, but um, does some other things. Oh. And leaves and forgets about it. Nine months later, she has... A baby. A baby. Two babies, actually. Oh, my. And the babies slowly crawl up her body until one of them comes to her finger which has i think it's a piece of flax in this version not a needle and the baby sucks the flax out of her finger which which enables her to wake up then we have the whole second half of the story which is that the prince comes back tells her what he did she's totally cool with it and in love with him and they have these kids but the prince has an evil wife character Oh my goodness. And the evil wife character is mad at the prince when she, cause you she's. You don't say. Yeah. And she's portrayed as this horrible villain of the story, but. You, <laughs> Actually, your her husband is a necrophiliac uh, rapist. Yeah. Which is not a phrase that you usually throw around <laughs> when thinking about Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> but so the whole second half of the story is the machinations of this evil wife, evil quote unquote wife, and who wants to get revenge on the king. So she finds out that there's this Sleeping Beauty character and that she has these two kids. She sends for the two kids, gets them there. Her revenge scheme is to bake them in a pie and feed them to her husband so that he'll eat the the fruit of his loins or whatever. The cook has mercy on the kids, some kind of Snow White style, slaughters a lamb or something and serves it. And you get this whole scene where the evil queen is taunting the king because... He's eat- she thinks he's eating his children, even though he's not. So, yay! There's not actually cannibalism, just the idea of cannibalism. And then the evil queen somehow gets a hold of Sleeping Beauty while her husband is out, you know, hunting again. I don't know why she lets this guy out of her sight. But she makes this big fire and tells Sleeping Beauty that she's going to be burned in the fire. Sleeping Beauty has the presence of mind to realize how greedy this queen is and says, don't you want my clothes and all the jewels and stuff? And so the queen's like, okay, strip. And she starts pulling off her clothes. And every time the queen pulls an item of clothing off of Sleeping Beauty, she cries out. And she cries out and screams louder and louder. And this enables the prince, the husband of the bad guy, let's not forget, to run back, burst in, catch the queen at her evil plot, order that she be... Burned thrown into the fire reward the cook for not baking killing and baking his two children and marry the hot young chick that he had um violated earlier 
So it's a beautiful story for children. Wow. And oh my goodness. Um, I knew none of that. The last line of the fairy tale it makes is, me sick to my stomach. He who has luck may go to bed and blissful rain upon his head. <laughs> um wow so people like to talk about the dark precedents or whatever for fairy tales sleeping beauty definitely right up there right up, I, I think not right up there i think oh, it is the, it is the winner it's like maleficent wrote this version <laughs> um uh. but i don't want to end on that note jake so <laughs> let's talk about how great this fairy tale is <laughs> or this uh no, I am literally sick to my stomach. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, folks. It's an interesting bit of folklore. It's really gross. And it's it's interesting when you read it how fairy tale like it is. You know, it doesn't describe any of the stuff any more than I did. But I was going to eat lunch as soon as we were done. I am not going to do that now. Well, I'm sorry, folks. People suck. But I think it was worth saying, but oh, man. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, how about them Yankees? Yeah, how about them Yankees? Sleep, sleeping. Having a rough spring, spring training. <laughs> maybe I should have start. Maybe, see, folks, this is why structure and storytelling is so <laughs> important. Maybe I should have started with the nasty story, and then we could like get to all the positive energy stuff about how great the movie is later. But instead, we started with all the positive energy stuff, and now we, here we are. Now here we are. Well, all the idiots out there that are like Disney, you prettied up all these great classic stories. They can go take a long walk in the sticks. Yes. Thank you, Disney. Thank you, Walt Disney. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to say it. Thank you for not having the Little Mermaid die and turn into foam at the end. As as much as children would have loved that. Thank you for not having a scene where Aurora is violated. Yeah. By the prince that she will later marry after he's had his understandably angry first wife killed. Sheesh. (laughs) It's just... Philip. Kind of a better dude than uh, whatever that's in that story. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I think your point you just made is good. Disney sanitation, 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 however, whatever you say Sanitization. That. Sanitization. Not always a bad thing. Well, okay. Let me see if I have any more notes. Maybe that'll help us here. Greatest final battle in Disney? True or false? I mean, what would Ursula, the contenders be? Jafar, Mufasa, Gaston. and Scar, or uh, Gaston. Those, those are all good. Ursula, Jafar, Gaston are all great final battles. Simba and Scar is is great. I don't know that I put it up that high. It's emotionally fraught and it's symbolic, but the actual battle of it all is just them kind of slapping each other. Yeah, cat's kind of girly, actually. Yeah, Yeah, it is kind of like a girl fight. Yeah, claws in cat, literally. So that that removes the Lion King and leaves us with Jafar, Gaston, Ursula. And Ursula in this. I mean, they drive a ship into her gut. I think Ursula might have my favorite Disney death. Oh, just, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it is so brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it's an over-the-top death for maybe the most over-the-top villain. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get to talk about that next time, maybe? Yeah, I guess that's our next yeah. one. That'll be fun. Ah, uh, Gaston's pretty great. I like when he's smashing the heads off of those gargoyles, gargoyles. and... Beast catches it. Yeah. I like that the beast can just own him once he wants to. Yeah. And then I like that the beast shows mercy and Gaston... Uh, Does a coward move. Has, ...is hoisted on his own petard. It's a yeah. good death for Gaston. Fun fact, I guess I should save this fun fact for Beauty and the Beast, but why not? Originally, Gaston was, about, was supposed to land and still be alive and be eaten by wolves. 
Hmm. It was going to kind of pay off the wolf thread running through the story. Oh, that would have been fun. And um, they they decided to repurpose that idea for the Lion King and have yeah. that, that guy get eaten by hyenas in that case. Yep. But so yay, Disney deaths. So friends, I thought we were the enemy. Yeah. Or in the new version, you set yourself scar. We're going to eat you or something. I don't know. <laughs> cool line. <laughs> uh, so Jafar. Oh, Simba. <laughs> You're in trouble again. But this time daddy's not here to save you. And now everyone knows why. Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons says, let me tell you my little secret. <laughs> I killed Mufasa. <laughs> Let me relish every word coming out of my mouth. I love that in animation, you can have one brother be a regal black man voice <laughs> and one brother be a fastidious, <laughs> evil, snide, British Brit. <laughs> voice. <laughs> like, how did these guys grow up in the same lion family? <laughs> and, and somehow Matthew Broderick was the son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most white bread <laughs> guy. Bueller? Bueller. <laughs> okay, we got to figure this out. So... Jafar battles great, but it, it, Jafar like is a series of cool images with the snake and everything. But it ends up being a in the. It's not just the snake though. You've got the hourglass, and you've got the uh, turret being shot to like the Arctic Circle or Antarctic or wherever it got shot to, and phenomenal cosmic powers and itty bitty living space and the. Yeah, it's a lot of. And Jasmine kisses him. When? Oh, Jafar. Yeah. Yeah. I was too bad. Your beard is so twisted. <laughs> <laughs> she got to use her feminine wiles. She won't be speechless. She won't be speechless. She will not be silent. No. Well, actually, that uh, that new one probably didn't have to use her feminine wiles, did she? She used her political wiles. Yeah, she used her political wiles to become the next sultan. Yeah. The thing that history is famous for. It's the thing that Arab culture in general is famous for is their empowerment of women. Yep. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna take. Can I take Ursula out of the running? It's a pretty great moment, but it's yeah. not really a great battle. Yeah. So that leaves Gaston, Jafar, and Prince Philip. I think I really want to give it to Philip. He's a great action hero. He fights off those gargoyles, and then he has to get through, the get thorns. across the bridge, and then get across the thorns, and then he fights a dragon. Yeah. And it's a really cool dragon fight. Yeah. I want to deduct a few points because I kind of wish that he was able to just pull it off without, without the fairies, fairies doing everything. A spell on the sword. Yeah, and getting him through the vines and like let's just get Philip let Philip have the dignity of getting her done himself, but it's fine. I loved that the the instant that the fairies have come all the way into the Maleficent's castle, they've unbound him, they've given him his sword and his shield. And now he suddenly takes charge and they're following him. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. He's like, this way. <laughs> Old movies were just more chivalrous and cool. and yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Is this the best battle? I like that he has an old timey knight shield too. It's, like you, it's a pretty great battle. You wouldn't give, you wouldn't give a hero that shield probably. These the other days. thing that's always bothered me as a kid mm -hmm. that I think is pretty great. I think it bothers me for good reason is... He ends up losing his shield and his sword. And you, you see the sword down there in this like... It turns black and kind of melts along with her, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It it just fades to black. The sword doesn't... The sword's just still there. Because it, it's always bothered me that he didn't go get it. He didn't go get the... He didn't go find the shield. He didn't go find the sword. These magical things that he used to kill the dragon. 
As soon as Maleficent was dead, that man hopped on his horse and he went to that girl. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? It it always sort of bothered me. As a kid. like As a kid. I think it's kind of a, a great thing that this is interesting. Well, once Maleficent's dead. The gargoyles? Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. But this is a Disney villain. Once you kill them, all their minions disappear, d- dissipate or are rendered ineffective. I just thought this time, I ain't got time for that. Yeah, gotta I gotta kiss go the girl. Get, I gotta kiss the girl. Yeah. It's pretty fun. I like that. That is the kind of thing that bothers me in movies is if somebody leaves their hat or puts something down and doesn't pick it up, I, I will be distracted the whole scene. Like, don't forget it. Yeah. I don't know why that is, but it's the genius of Spielberg, actually, when Indiana Jones in the very opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark is under that thing and it's coming down and he grabs his hat. Yep. It's like, yeah, he should grab his hat. His hat is important. I would be frustrated if he lost his hat in that temple mm-hmm. and had to leave it behind. Indiana Jones would be a lesser man. Well, Jake, how many fairies out of three? No, we need a... How many gargoyles? No, we can't use something bad. How many... It doesn't matter what you say. The answer is all of them. The answer is all of them. Uh, blue or pink? Blue. Always blue. Blue for life. Blue for life. Yep. No pink. Nope. Not for the dress? No. Hmm. No. Ian disagrees with me on this, but I think most people agree with me. The, 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 this, family, specifically, this dress is better than pink or just... The blue dress is better than the pink dress. I think it probably is. I don't mind it when it's pink. And I just say, this is maybe not my most masculine moment, but that is a very cool dress a well-designed yeah that might be my favorite disney princess dress yeah it's awesome i'd say i'd put i'd say Belle's dress in the ball scene that gold number yep is pretty great for what it is make elsa pretty fabulous but she doesn't actually count right yeah we're not going to count elsa so but that dress with like the weird actually all of aurora's costumes are cool the dress with the weird i don't know what you call it like the things the angular thing around her shoulders is Mm -hmm. Really fun. And then I saw a little article about her peasant costume or whatever, the thing that she mm-hmm. goes in the woods. There is absolutely nothing medieval about that, except for that weird black girdle thing yep. that vaguely says medieval. Other than that, the length, the style, everything about it is just 1950s chic. I mean, you can imagine Audrey Hepburn showing up somewhere and with a dress that, that exact mm-hmm. length, the skirt um, yep. and the top and... Everything about it, her hair is, her hair is a lot longer than your average 1950s gal, but the bangs are mm-hmm. totally of the time. I dig her style, man. I dig it too. Can't go wrong. Oh, here's one other note. Maleficent's greatest line. I'll just read it here. You poor simple fools, thinking you could defeat me, the mistress of all evil. <laughs> <laughs> The mistress of all evil. I think those are really the three blunders, aren't they? Starting a land <laughs> lord, starting a land war in Asia, going Bring in against the Sicilian when death, death is all is on war. the line, and thinking that you can defeat <laughs> the mistress of all evil. <laughs> That's it. All right, folks. I give this one all the things to. I think there's a part of my brain that wants to say they could have made some quick fixes to the structure of the story and more people would love this more than they do. But man, it is a tremendous achievement and it is one of the best. You know what I would do if I was doing the screenplay? What I would at least consider is let's start with her pricking her finger and then let's go backwards. Let's flash back. Let's flash back and fill it all in with that hanging over our heads. But Disney's not going to do flashbacks, certainly not in that era. 
So, <laughs> anyway, good movie. Good movie. Good job. And if people want to hear about Clone Wars, <laughs> I don't have I don't have any kind of transition for that, but they can go to <laughs> patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies, listen to our bi-weekly Clone Wars reviews, talking our way through that thing, having a lot of fun doing it, and it's a pretty great show. I'm really enjoying it. We are also incentivizing people to sign up for patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies hey we're not that far from our first goal right our first goal so we have the thing called uh the superhero's journey it's something that we're unlocking at various levels of monthly patronage and uh the first level is just a hundred dollars a month Mm -hmm. and we're pretty close to it and we unlock the first level of the superhero's journey which is indiana jones the american anti-hero right which will lead us into uh the modern superheroes starting with the old 70s and 80s uh, Superman and Batman, and then into Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and Christopher Nolan's Batman, which I'm really excited to get to. Me too. And then into the Marvel era. Yep. So help us unlock that stuff. Get us to $100 a month. If you liked our Star Wars reviews and you'd like some kind of in-depth Indiana Jones, like just getting into everything that makes Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones, then please get us there be really fun to talk about and until next time folks visions are seldom all they seem probably not the most iconic line from that movie i thought you were gonna say now you should deal with me now you shall deal with me oh prince and all the powers of hell (laughs) 